hello and welcome to another episode of Advancing Racial Equity 4.0, brought to you by HRE Wired and hosted by me, Shireen, the HR Conversationalist. For this episode, I am joined by Ashish Prashar, who is the Global Chief Marketing Officer at RGA. And the breadth and just the scope of our conversation will be a little bit difficult to keep up with at times, but I promise you it is worth it. Like every conversation I had, it's always worth it. We spoke about everything from our approach to people who have been incarcerated, white supremacy, abolitionism, what it means to restore justice, what it means to speak truth to power, what it is to question our institutions. We spoke about politics, UK politics. We we spoke about what happens to leaders who think this is just a fad and are still clinging to ignorance, as I call it, hoping that this movement is nothing but a moment. And Ashish gives his view and his advice to those individuals who may still be sitting on the fence. And one of the many things I love about Ashish in this conversation is he does not mince his words. So if you thought I was bad, well, listen, I've been given a run for my money. So I hope you enjoy it. Ashish, have I pronounced your name correctly? Yes, you have. Yay! Fabulous. So I just want to context how I have even got you here today. So a few weeks ago, I was minding my own business over the weekend, as you do. And then this article appears in Fast Company about social justice reform and an individual talking about, you know, being one of the few C-suite who were formerly incarcerated. That's not your whole story, but that was the context of this particular article. So I'm reading this article when I'm meant to be sorting out the kids, but I wasn't. So I was like, I'm just going to get into this. And as I carried on reading, I was like, who is this guy? Where can I find him? And I slid into your DMs on Twitter, didn't I? Yes, you did. Thank you for having me. Now you're welcome. So I'm going to be quiet now because, you know, otherwise I'll be gassing you up. This whole this whole conversation is just me telling you how amazing you are. I mean, who doesn't love a hype first? I mean, I don't even know where to start. That was such an amazing intro. I mean, yeah, firstly, really, thank you for having me. I mean, it's when you read the article, people are like, oh, you're so confident about talking about these things. But I, I'll be honest with you. Um, it took me time to get to where I am, right? So, you know, you mentioned, you know, I, I around 20 years ago, I experienced our criminal justice system firsthand. Um, you know, I didn't grow up um, with the police chasing me. I, you know, I grew up in a middle-class family, West London. Um, at 16, my parents divorced. And that single event, which didn't seem significant at the time, nevertheless led to the collapse of all I knew to be true at that moment. You know, it's stability, right? Anytime you're, anything is stable and your life is like shattered, you don't know what's going to happen. My mum left. A week later, she took my sister. Uh, My dad wasn't in the best place. And although I had other family members around me looking for something to replace, I was looking for something to replace that hole. And I found kinship or closer kinship in friends that I already knew at school, friends who Mm -hmm. shared conflict, friends who had lost people in their lives, friends who just wanted other people to be around them. You know, they were risk takers and adventurers and we did senseless things, by the way, senseless things that all kids do. Um, But, you know, our laws are constructed that we get in trouble for these things, Um, things that we could have got nicked for many times. But every time we got away with something, you know, our exploits got bigger and daring and we got, you know, we grew closer and closer and that became my family. Yeah. And it was, you know, I did an audacious exploit um, where we... um, 
yeah, 17, uh, we were arrested and charged and convicted of a crime of conspiracy to steal from a department store in London, Harvey Nichols, you know, um, which, you know, ironically, you know, it's still one of my favourite places to shop. So, Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm desperately trying not to be the person that, like, my response could be construed as glorifying what you did. But part of me just really oh. wanted to say, can I just say it? If you're going to do anything, right, not like me in the market store yeah. where I grew up, do you know what yeah. I mean, like yeah. townland, right? Yeah. You're, you're going, you're, you're going big guns. You, you guys are not playing. <laughs> not playing. But you know, there was genius in it. Like, here's the thing I'm about saying, opportunity. Just gonna, I just want people to know we are not condoning. Yeah. Me, I'm not condoning this. We are not, you know, but nope. like, I was desperately trying not to say, and I'm like, oh, I have yeah. to, come on now. But you're not wrong. I mean, look, some people are thinking right now, probably, how did we do that, right? What did we do? Did we raid it? Did we raid Harvey Nichols? Did we put things under our coats? No, we stole 20,000 20, to 30,000 pounds worth of merchandise, and it was a pretty sophisticated crime. I know, well, you know, we got messy, but it was a sophisticated crime for a bunch of teenagers. One of my friends at the time, you know, you know, and here's the thing about intersectionality, and this is what people need to remember about London. Brown and black people have such a similar experience in London, right? Fucking, uh, sorry for my language, but like, you know, like, uh, how much of our communities intersect musically uh, through culture and everything else, just the way immigration patterns have worked. Our friends were a group of black and brown kids, right? One of my friends at the time could take the black metal strip on the back of a credit card and back then, they were on the back of everything. Do you remember library cards, blockbuster cards, ID cards? He could program them with credit card details. This is the year 2000, right? Mm. So we'd rock into the store and run them. We did it once, got away with it. We did it twice, surprised how easy it was. And it was about the fifth occasion we got caught. And, I, you know, I, I go back to that and think, that person could have, it, it, you know, fast forward a different life, probably white, could have been at Google and building a piece of technology. Um but, you know, because of the way privilege works and because of the way society works, they're ostracized, didn't have an opportunity. That person was also taking care of their family at the time. So that was, you know, not condoning criminality, but that was innovation at the time. Um, and look, I knew I was in trouble, but I didn't really know how much at the time. Even the morning of sentencing, I didn't believe I was going to prison. It was my first offense. I was honest to the police. I pleaded guilty. We accepted responsibility and we were ready to be punished. But did I really believe I was going to prison? To, to prison? I guess mm. not. You know, I, I don't remember anything from that court appearance except the judge saying that I was sentenced to one year in prison. And I've got to say, it was like an out-of-body experience. Um, the next thing I remember was being in the cell below the court and the prison van eventually picks me up and takes me down this weird familiar route um, on the way to Feltham Young Offenders Institute. Um, when I was younger, see, like, we have family in East London, and, you know, I grew up in West London, and, like, we'd occasionally go to, like, Sunday dinners and, like, you know, to a relative's home in East London. We'd drive down the embankment and see kind of London in its magnificence at night, right? You see Houses of Parliament, you see Big Ben, Tower of London, you know, all stuff that, by the way, black and brown people built for white people, I want to say that as well. But, like, you know, uh, it's real, real talk. See why I told you, me and you were a vibe. Yeah, 100%. Our blood built that, uh, built that, built all the crown jewels of this, uh, of this country. You know, it, it, that's what it is. I mean, and the prison van took that route. It was, and we drove down the embankment past Big Ben, past Parliament, past bridge after bridge. You know, that route where you pass all these yes. beautiful Victoria Bridge yes. and Battersea Bridge. Yes. And all the feelings of joy and innocence were being replaced by sadness. And it kind of seemed fitting that it really got pitch black when we reached prison. 
and this is where they take you apart. You know, mm. I arrived at Felton. This is my identity gets stripped away from me. Um, they take your personal belongings, whatever ones you have. They take your clothes. They issue with like prison jeans, um, a shirt, faded blue sweatshirt. And everyone is processed and they escort us to ourselves. Before the guard closes the door behind me, I look around and, you know, you walk into the cell. It's, there's two tiny bars of soap. Um, I still vividly remember this because it's like an out-of-body mm. experience. A plastic comb, two packets of like Colgate toothbrush was on all on the desk and on the bed was like, you know, on the stained mattress was like a duvet and a pillow. Mm. The cell is profoundly cold and depressing. And the guard basically shuts the door and says, next time you'll be out is breakfast and the door slams. And at that moment, that was the first moment in my life. I knew my life had changed. My, I'd been stripped of my identity, my freedom. Mm. I sat down on the bed and I'll be honest with people listening. I began to cry because mm. it was the last time and I don't know what led to this, by the way, it, call it instinct. Um, but it's the last time I knew I could be myself and be vulnerable. Next thing I remember was the door opening in the morning. And, and that's the first time I saw my fellow in detainees. And when I look back now, I see children. We lock up our children. They're black, Asian, they're working class, white. They are kids. And, and, and that's heartbreaking now when I look back. Um, I experienced everything. And this is what happened to our children. We have to remember these are our children. So humiliation, beatings, older prisoners being set on younger ones by so-called prison officers. You know, they took food away from people. They handcuffed people to their cell for days. They made racist remarks. They verbally assault us, trying to go to reaction because they knew any response requires you to stay in prison longer. I was even put in solitary confinement for a short stint of my own, uh, for my own protection. The same solitary confinement that is referred to as a hot box. Same mm. solitary confinement where people take their lives, lose themselves. Mm. And yet this treatment was for my protection. See, prison to me was never created to stop recidivism. It was created to make us suffer. Their goal is to make us remain a prisoner inside even when you're out. People ask me, oh, how did I turn around? How did my life begin? It really started with care and love. And it was a one-person program. See, in the year 2000, 2001, we didn't have like justice reform programs. We didn't have NGOs like stepping up and trying to intervene and fight the government on this stuff. It started with a one person program. My aunt, she fought for me. She, she, she fought the justice department so I could do my AS levels in prison. She, at the same time as my classmates were doing on the outside, she fought the facility to make sure I had the materials. Cause even when that was granted by the justice department, the guy, the warden and the guards didn't want me to have books. So how am I supposed to study for them? She had to fight them to get me the books. Um, and she also got me out in half the sentence time because she knew every day I was in prison was an opportunity for really bad things to happen. And on my release, because of her and my grandparents who stepped in, um, I had a safe space to go home to where I was loved and supported. And, you know, there were still so many obstacles in my path. But just having that and not being told to leave prison with 40 bucks in your pocket, you know, and get on with your life was transformative in of itself. You know, I, I finished studying, um, but it didn't take away from the stigma of having a record. Would employers ever want to talk to me after I checked that box? And for those who don't know listening, what I'm referring to is that box 
where it says yes or no next to the question, do you have a criminal record? It can be found on basically every job application, rental, housing agreements, immigration forms. Most UTICs know and don't give it a second thought. I have to tick yes. Um, and even though you get to enjoy your freedom and you're fortunate to be out, you're not actually free. Imagine carrying that scarlet letter, that, that weight of that judgment for the rest of your life. And that's the way it is for most people throughout their lives. I got lucky. I'll be honest. I met a former Fleet Street editor who knew I had a record, Didn't, uh, but he didn't ask what I did. But he did ask me how I got here, meeting him in that moment. He saw a grafter. He saw a hustler. He saw someone who would always get the job done, even with a little mischief, because, you know, tabloids and Fleet Street. He saw my life experience, all of it, as a positive. But most importantly, he saw me. Mm. And thanks to him... I had a career in British and American politics where I got to work with the likes of Boris Johnson and Tony Blair, and most recently Vice President Joe Biden, who's now president, you know. Um, but as a returning citizen, my story isn't common. Truly, the only thing I had in common with my fellow returning citizens is I experienced racism at every point of the way, from the sentencing to my treatment in prison itself. And take a back, take a step back for a moment. Why do you see? Why do we have recidivism? It's often the lack of opportunity, but more often than not, it's because of desperation. You know, of having nowhere to go, nowhere to sleep, no support. Once out, most formerly incarcerated people are sent back to systems of deprivation that usually got them there in the first place. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. And they have few job prospects because of it, thanks to the stigma attached to that record. They've spent time being treated as less than human, being beaten down, and will have internalized some of that rhetoric. And their communities sometimes may reject them as less than. And, and mass incarceration to me is not just a US problem, it's a UK problem, it's a human rights catastrophe. You know, in the United States right now, it's only 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prison population. The biggest peacetime prison population in human history times two in the so-called land of the free. It's a human rights catastrophe. We you can't recognise, we spend 80 billion on this. I was just looking at the um, the UK numbers mm. and 26% of the prison population is made up of black mm. and brown people, mm-hmm. predominantly ethnic mm-hmm. minorities, which is absolutely crazy considering we only represent 14 percent mm-hmm. this is the uk number now of oh, no, 100 one of the reasons why i wanted to talk to you and, and not just apart from to hear your fascinating story and what's really interesting is because i know people that up to this point listening and going but what actually does ashley's juice so we're going to get to this <laughs> bit of content so this is you you're just doing the biggest reveal ever right so this is this is great but one of the reasons why is because We cannot talk about racial equity. We cannot talk about social justice if we don't also look at the areas of exclusion and Mm -hmm. how black and brown people are excluded in society Mm -hmm. because we're then not understanding the structural elements that keeps that same cycle that we were talking about. So poverty, lack of opportunity, structural racism, racial prejudice, all of those things closes certain doors but possibly opens up other doors that really and truly we shouldn't be stepping into but choice circumstance all of those things we go through those doors we get put through a system that even more dehumanizes us than the societies we've just stepped away from we get churned back out we go back into that environment and if nothing has changed that cycle still continues and they're doing it to our children 50 percent. you said 26 percent. 50 percent of young people in prison are black and asian 
crazy. And you know, 60% of UK's drug and stop and searches are black and Asian. They're not looking for guns and knives, despite the claim they're trying to protect other people. They're looking for petty amounts of stuff to put people in prison, you know? Yeah. And the inevitable conclusion is everything is racist around that. You know, it's clear we have two systems because if you are the right skin color, have money or live in the right postcode, frankly, you never see the police. You don't even see a police officer. You don't see the inside of a courtroom. It doesn't matter how many laws you break. You don't see jail. But if you do the same thing as a black person or a brown person in the UK, you will serve time or worse, lose your life because of the tasering stuff that's going on now. And frankly, yeah. the irrational use of guns that people are asking for black, black people in community, black people in community of color are being failed. We are failing them. And, and I'll give you an example. I learned out here from education of this is even deeper here in the United States, the black experience is contradictory. On one hand, we celebrate black artists, black leaders, Malcolm X, Dr. King, LeBron James, Beyonce, Rosa Parks. At the same time, the vast majority of black people are disproportionately incarcerated, over-policed, over-supervised, pushed out of employment, pushed out of school and pushed into prisons. It's a maddening experience because society says it doesn't exist. The UK just did a report saying it doesn't exist. It's on you to pull yourself up. All of this has to do with other systems, as you mentioned, how we engage with black men and women in America and in the UK education, in the workplace, um, in education, with economic opportunity. In America, black women, for example, the largest educated segment of our society and less. Why is that? See how racism works in every aspect of our society. Then look at how black people are treated by our courts and our police. We focus so much just on police and justice, but then we take accountability away from folks who are not directly engaged with the criminal justice system. We have to look at our racist society and look at the people with privilege who are white and how they use that privilege to look down on others. We need to think about this holistically. Black people have been failed. We have to look at holistically at our capitalist racist structures, all of them, and radically restructure how we build society following this pandemic. We need to focus on not what we're defunding, but what we're investing and building in. I think people still struggle with just how much power is inherently built into a racialized society. Mm. So just how much power white people have and many, many definitions. But, you know, one of the key things that I always say to people is that that true definition of power is the ability to change the rules to suit mm-hmm. you and have nobody challenge you on that. And when I say nobody challenge you, meaning nobody challenge you to the extent that you have to change your course of action. Yeah. You know, so back to your point about, you know, some you can have 17 year old black and brown kids and I'm going to use the word kids not not young men I'm going to call them kids you can have black and brown kids you can have white kids who do exactly the same thing one will get passed off as youthful exuberant cheeky lads you know all Mm -hmm. of that good stuff and off they go and then the other group and that they're into they're into the system and then and then off you go and it's and it's the disproportionate behavioral expectations for black and brown people in this context, but also that reinforces the fact that we're less than. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, 100%. what do you do now? Do you know what I mean? Because the way you're talking, like they're thinking like, is he doing this? What does he do? What do you do? <laughs> it, what, is your, what do you do that made your journey means you're doing stuff with Joe Biden. You're doing stuff with Tony Blair. You've done stuff with Boris Johnson. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was 
No, listen, love, there's no Look, I will, I will tell, but I'll tell you why. I mean, because progressive people get really, really weird about me having worked for Boris. That my first job was with a tabloid, right? With a right wing tabloid, right? But I would argue that most people would never, have, you know, people will hire me today and I'll get to what I do right now. But they'll hire the nearly 40 year old version of me who has worked for all those people. The 19 year old version of me was hired by a right wing tabloid because they didn't, the guy, the individual saw me and didn't see my record. Right. And I would argue most 19 year old versions of me wouldn't be even hired by the industries I've worked in since all the politicians that I've worked with after that, that person transformed my life. That person obviously is a conservative and he took me to go work for the conservative party and then the likes of Boris Johnson. Right. And people will go, Oh, but still you had a choice. I'm like, not if you want to put that behind you. You could say it's easy, but I'll, I'm going back to the first thing I said to you at the beginning of this podcast, which is I wasn't talking like this all my life. Like, you know, it took me a decade to become an abolitionist. Even after I, even after I left prison, it took me a decade because all I wanted to do was protect the people around me. I didn't want them to do. I didn't want my grandparents to deal with that. You know, grandson has a criminal record. How do you feel? You know, I, I wanted to just thrive. And because of that individual, I got to work in politics and for people I don't particularly like, I think a freaking white supremacist. And I knew what I was doing then. And then when I got enough of my own privilege, I left. In a way, I wrote an op-ed calling David Cameron uh, what he was. And people were like, oh, he's a liberal Tory. And by the way, everything came true after he got elected. Oh, he cut the welfare state. He did everything that we're, talk- we're dealing with today. And I left. And I went to come out to the United States for the first time to work for Obama's first campaign. I, got, I had to acquire privilege to get to where I wanted to be. Now, fast forward where I am today. I'm you know, the global CMO for RGA, which is an iconic design brand. But a design brand, the reason I'm here, and you're going like, why are you working in the creative industry? Some people right now, I'm, this is a brand that believes in building a more human future. And I'm not trying to sell it, but they're building and creating experiences and designing experiences around people. Yes. And if the pandemic has not taught us anything, that everything should be built around people. Technology isn't a threat if you build it around people in partnership with people by diverse voices and people not use it as it's framed in the binary by our media is like AI will put you out of a job and everyone panics. You need to constructively build things around people. And because what else matters after this? We've lost millions of people around the planet in this last year. Why wouldn't yeah. you build things around people? And our, and our, the clients that we get to work with are looking for that. And they're looking for diverse voices to lead that and looking for different voices to lead that that have different experiences, whether you're black, brown, formerly incarcerated, you know, impacted by the justice system, a woman, LGBTQ, they need all of you to build everything to transform this world. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend here and say capitalism is good, but I do believe we can transform the economy and become a moral economy. Capitalism is not good. Like it's not good. Look, everything that we have been successful of in the West has been built on slavery right it's been built on oppression oppression it's, it's what I think transit, yeah and I keep every time I, it's really interesting so this is why it's always so gratifying to talk to somebody who's not going to comment me like I'm mad it's really interesting isn't it about how race racism is intertwined with capitalism because it is because it's this whole idea of the haves and the haves nots mm-hmm. right and scarcity mm-hmm. so you must king's wealth mm-hmm. king must accumulate for their castle you know so this whole idea of so as much as you can as much as you can lay the moat you know, I'm being very literal now, historical sense, lay the moat. But then you've also got, um, as you said, 
the fundamental principles of capitalism is for the very top to succeed, the very bottom have to be exploited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the foundation of it. That's why we have the triangle, isn't it? Minimum wage at the bottom. Those at the very top who you could argue could only exist because of the very bottom. Otherwise, it would be a flat structure. I think the last year has also opened the eyes up of all the stakeholders, employees, shareholders and all that. And everyone will be like, oh, you're being naive. It's shareholders. Look, shareholders can be people. We look at shareholders as like the guy on Wall Street, right? Technically, if you have a 401k in America, which is like a pension, you own shares in companies. And that is even people who are working class have that, right? Not everyone has one, but you can have one. You are a shareholder. And if you are, want things to change, you should actually start attending those meetings and be an activist shareholder and start saying, I don't want you to invest in the prison industrial complex. I don't want you to use slave labor. I don't want you to pay people below minimum wage. And you might be one voice, but the more of you that do it, like any movement, you can change things. I'm not, again, not naive. It's going to take time and it's a long fight, but the pressure is coming from all sides at this moment. It's coming from employees as much as it's coming from us on the street as well. So it's coming from inside the C-suite, from some people's ideological beliefs like mine. It's coming from, it's coming from customers. And then the end of the day, all these companies do care about is their customers and their customers demand moral economy, demand to know where their stuff is made, demand to know how it's made, demand to use what type of, per, what type of person, the, what conditions the person was under when they made it things are going to start to change. And I think we're all starting to do that. We're voting, we're voting with our morals, but we're also like acting, we're holding companies to account with our morals too. A hundred percent. And I also think what's really interesting, and I can only chart this, and I'm going to ask you this question Mm. as well, because as I said, it's not often when I, when I talk to C-suite individuals who are literally talking about white supremacy, like I would talk about eating a wham bar. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's so... (laughs) I feel you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I love it. And I love, love that you brought up a word, but I miss stuff like that from when I live in New York. Oh, I miss Maltesers. I miss Maltesers. I'll send you, I'll send you some dairy milk because I know it costs a goddamn uh, fortune, fortune in, in New York. It's like £10 for like three squares. I know. It's, it's like, they say it's the cost of it importing. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? No, they're lying. They just want to sell yeah. Hershey's. You know That's what I mean? So like, no, we need dairy milk. Yes. We need dairy milk. 100%. Um, we as oppressed and racialized individuals almost seek permission to do anything that takes us out of that overt lane that society has put Mm -hmm. us in therefore being complicit in this system to keep turning so you know we know the systemic elements of racism will actually always keep working providing we don't do anything Mm -hmm. anyone right so we can just carry on and it will keep ticking only when we question only when we activate as activists Mm -hmm. Only as we keep challenging, only as we press the stop button and go, hang on a minute, do we disrupt that? And I think just to your point about what's been shifting, particularly over the last year and and then the last couple of years, we're seeing this conversion of what I call impact, meaning we want to see the positive impact or how we're mitigating our impact on the planet. So we're seeing the kind of the the green and the climate change, the Mm. environmental response, because all of all of a sudden we are eroding our planet Mm. for money and profit and all the things that we've talked about. We have nowhere else to live. (laughs) Right. Never mind Mars. Elon Musk isn't going to do nothing for 2025. We ain't going to be here. No. (laughs) Send people like him to Mars. Don't let them come back. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Just if that's what he wants to do, that's fine. 
So, you know, you've, you've got this kind of um, the impact on the environment, but you've also got this recognition that it isn't enough for the world to be geared around the perspectives, the viewpoints and the comfort mm. of whiteness and therefore white people. And all of a sudden, we're no longer asking for permission to do something about it. We're demanding something is done. And that is a very uncomfortable tension mm. that the majority in the C-suite, because unfortunately, they're not all as fabulous as you, as <laughs> you, you. you well know. Do you know what I mean? It's it's kind of like the um, and I've forgotten the names of like the original Ben and Jerry's founders, but you know with that energy, yeah, I call them. You know that energy that you yeah. have, like this is like wrong. There's not enough of that because it's all geared back going back to this kind of capitalist um, systems and these structures that we have, and it's all about trying to mitigate risk and going well. We're going to react to what customers and the pressure, but we're not going to go too far. So we're not going to really go too far with social justice unless we can be sure that it is what the customers and the stakeholders want. So us as stakeholders, back to your point, when we recognise that's our power en masse, we have to start executing that power en masse because that's how we put for, push for change. Because we've seen like our UK government, if we wait for them to get themselves together, like, well, listen, you know, what are we going to be left with? I mean, they're just taking money from all of us right now. Black, brown, white. I mean, the, the level of corruption in the UK government. And I could, as someone who actually worked side by side with the likes of Rob and Hancock, I could have told you they were incompetent in 2007. And when they were special advisors, they didn't know policy from their remarks. I mean, and now they're running our country. Um, they're stealing from all of you. They're stealing from all of you. And I'm speaking to white people here as well. They are taking your money and making money. This is also like also a uniquely european thing about this like it's all about privileging like uh, a class right they are taking your money and sending you nationalist messages they're taking your taxes and giving it to their friends and they're going to get paid back when they leave and boris is in the middle of it right now um you know and i, I it just saddens me you know that it's happening in it's happening so openly and nothing's being done about it you know um and they're yeah, the exactly. robber barons. They're the robber barons that we call companies. But those yes. politicians are the robber barons right now um, in the United Kingdom. So here's my, here's my, because I, listen, I could be waxing lyrical about this. You know, one of the bees in my bonnet forever is we can see how, um, I'm not even going to talk about the PPE scandal of coronavirus oh, for the government yeah. because I know I've got a lot of US listeners now going to be like, what are they talking about? Like PPE, you know, what's going on with the scandal? But that example of, you know, one hand washing the other, as we like mm -hmm. to say in Jamaica, like, you know, just always making sure that your friends are the ones that are benefiting from, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that's still playing out in the open and then that there's no consequence, there's no accountability for that. Not at all. Nothing happens. And, and part of me just thinks, wow, this is really like the world that we live in, that our politicians can basically, it is confirmed that they went against their own internal policies yeah. It can play out in the media, but yet nothing happens because there is whoever back on Good Morning Britain or doing whatever it is on the BBC yeah. day in and day out. And is that our level of complacency? Yeah, I just asked, look, I'm just asking, I think I'm going to probably butcher a Malcolm X quote saying it. I think he said once that a few, you know, one of the first few things I think when I think of young people, especially nowadays, is they should learn how to see for themselves how to listen for themselves, how to think for themselves, then you can come to the intelligent decision for yourself. If you're listening to Good Morning Britain and, and BBC, you're already looking in the wrong places. You know, they're already parroting the message of like, 
the white supremacy and this government, you know, and you need to like widen your view, widen your field of vision of how you consume this thing. This isn't a conspiracy thing. We've never had our voices heard, you know, like this is, you know, we're now we're talking, they don't like it. So they retaliate through their constructed, you know, I'll give you a good example. Like, you know, they, you know, think about the term American, right? You know, white people think it's them. You know, they came to the United States, wiped out an entire nation to take the land, change the name and call themselves Americans. When you call them an American, you obliviate the correct history. They are not Americans. They are European settlers. You know, that's all they are. And if you're, if you're a European settler, they're certainly not the sons and daughters, you know, and if, if they're sons and daughters of European settlers, they're not Americans. You should not call them Americans, arguably. You know, you should, you should call them immigrants and settlers. You should, uh, to do, to, yeah, to, they're, they're, they're colonizers. To do that would misrepresent, you know, the native and indigenous populations of their own land here. You know, the part of like how they've transformed history. They've owned the media operations. They've owned the story. We have to take back and tell truth, right? Yeah. And, and also the real truth, because, you know, I think of things like how they frame Malcolm and mine, right? Malcolm was violent. Mine was peaceful. Martin Luther King knew exactly. Yeah. Right. His vision was also, he also knew where to do his protests. He knew he'd be met with resistance that would be violent. It was deliberate. He had, he also called out the threat that the liberal white person posed, you know, because they want everything to be done slowly, nicely, kindly. The, the oppressor telling the oppressed how to talk about oppression or see oppression is so oppressive. Like, it's, yeah. it's the most, it, like, it's the most ridiculous stuff I've ever heard. And, and then they're like, well, you know, then they'll throw even, they'll throw Gandhi at me. Did it peacefully. I was like, do you know how many Indians you killed? Do you know how many people you killed in response to his peaceful protests? Yeah. Like, and do you know how many times you put down people in India? Do you, and also, do you know what you did on the way out? You took a knife and drew a border in it and left it unfinished. And Kashmir is still bleeding because of that. You know, they're still bleeding because of that. Do you know what you also did? You took Palestinians' lands away and you gave it to other people. And you created borders that, again, were unfinished and were allowed to be exploited. You know, and and every time you see a straight line, every time you see a straight line in Africa, you knew you know Britain and France created that. So yeah, and my favorite comment is still like, you know, where are you from? You know, because you know I get the whole like, where you know I'm sure you get this. Where are you actually from? And I'm like, you need to give me a map to figure that one out because you know I'm not really from the motherland, but you know, yeah. but neither were my grandparents or parents. They were in Africa. They were grew up in Africa. Like you want, me, I want to say London. But that's not what they want to hear. They want to tell me where I'm really from. And like that code switching is insane. To have to manage that as a black or brown human being is insane. To always be questioned where you're actually from when you consider that these individuals colonize the world. You know. I know we've got issues with racism here, yeah. but why are we not looking at Africa? Because you know, Africa's like 90% black or brown or yeah. whatever, and there's no racism then. I'm like, because you don't understand it and you're not thinking about colonialism and you're also not thinking about imperialism. Yeah. Or class. Or class. You're not thinking about the fact that you can still be a white entrepreneur yeah. and step into yeah. any African continent and be treated like a king mm. above the very people that's the historic generations and generations know the lay of the land, they know mm. the economy, they know the society, they know everything. 
but because of white supremacy, we are still lauding the white man and by extension the white woman mm. as the beacon of hope and and an an opportunity, you know. And even and what's really interesting is even in, in, with us having this conversation, as she said, this was a year ago, I would be like going. And I don't mean all white people, and I don't yeah. mean to say yeah. that it's anti-white. But you know what? I don't say that anymore because yeah. if 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 you're listening to this conversation, and it's like really making you feel quite pressed, hmm. and you almost feel like you need acknowledgement to say you're not this bad person that we're talking about, well, then this is not for you. Yeah. Also, go do something about it. Don't don't feel sad about it. Go do something um go go out there and change your behaviors and how you interact with brands businesses people frankly yeah um and unlearn your racial biases that you've been pre-programmed to believe in you know every day we think we're civilized also in the west which makes me laugh a little bit i didn't become an abolitionist unbelievable like all the riches of like uh the uk france and you know my funny joke is a friend's child asked him recently uh, where the museum, where the museums get their stuff from, and I was like, that would have, that's a fun conversation. Like, like you, know, I, I'm sure. Oh, but they also say things like, oh, well, you wouldn't be able to take care of it. Like what? Like took care of it for centuries before you took it. So, you know, um, but no, but going, the reason I became an abolitionist was something I saw in Africa. Like I was in Sierra Leone at this point, working for Blair's Foundation and working on a healthcare project. Um, and it was like 10 years after I went to prison. And, you know, that country, as you probably know, suffered a massive civil war in the 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. And it still was dealing with reconciliation councils, uh, even a decade later, because it was children who were formerly child soldiers who being trying to brought back, trying to bring them back to society. And I saw a black mother and a Sierra Leonean mother and father who lost their children to the child soldier they were standing in front of, who executed them. And then they adopted that young teenager. That's justice. They, they, they said, and this isn't the only case, but it's the one that stung to me because it transformed my view of justice. Um, we've already lost enough children in our country to war. And their enlightenment is something I've never seen from people in the Western justice system. Like we think punishing our people and in turn our children is a solution for, for society. Like we think that's fixing things are broken. And, and this family were, was the, that was the reason I became an abolitionist. That's the reason I got into, you know, reading Angela Davis because, you know, she asks us to enlarge our field of vision. So rather than focusing on problems of the institution and asking us what needs to be changed about the institution, we raise like radical questions about the organize, about the organization itself or organization of larger society. Like why does the institution need to exist in the first place and what principles underpin its founding and its evolution? And when you do that to most our justice system, you realize most of it was set up and built in both countries to incarcerate and oppress people of color. And, you know, we, we can create spaces for budgets to be divested from prisons and police and invested directly into communities to address things like mental health needs, homelessness, access to critical education, rewarding careers, and community-based methods of accountability. See, abolitionist strategies teach us that our vision of the future can radically depart from what exists here and now. And we're all part of that, especially to people who are listening. It's not like a black thing or a brown thing. This is all of us. This will change how we feel about life. This is the world I imagine, and most people who are abolitionists do, a world grounded in love, 
justice and accountability, a world grounded in safety and good health, a world grounded in meeting the needs of the people. And that's how we should be thinking about it. Not punishment. People should come first. And just as we finish, Ashish, before I kind of keep going for like two hours, because I'm just, oh my God, he said one thing, I want to roll up my sleeves and go, oh my God, what do you think about this? But we're not going to, because you know, we've got, we've got, we've got to ease people in. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm never about that. I think I drive people mad at dinner table. <laughs> Blatantly. Somebody's going to say, Shreem, why are you fucking lying? <laughs> <laughs> so if you, thinking about your peers, yeah. right, and particularly as you said, you're you're kind of in the creative industry and, you know, big old influence on shaping the view of the world almost, right, in terms of the narratives, the stories, the, the creative expression of some of these narratives and stories that we use to compel people to brands and all of that good ecosystem stuff. What would you say to those board directors who are sat here? And, I'm, and I, I don't know if you've seen this. So I, I've got something mm. particularly in my mind here. I don't know if you've seen um, the blog from the two founders of Basecamp. Oh, the funny thing about them saying we're not a political company and then suddenly like, oh, decisions are hard. What would you say to those C-suite directors who are, who are, who are clinging to a world that who, which I think doesn't exist anymore, where they cannot engage in this sort of conversation and understanding this momentum? You know, we're, the, mm-hmm. it's like a tectonic shift almost. We're, the world is different now. There's a different expectation. What would you say to them for those who are still harping back to the good old days and just want it all to go away? I mean, good luck. Um, you're going to lose. I mean, you're going to lose. You are on the side of, you are, you are the losers in the fight to keep apartheid. That's who you are. You are the white settlers in South Africa who tried to keep apartheid. Not some people didn't. Some people fought against it, but you are those people. That's how I view you. Um, you won't be able to keep this because everyone's eyes are open. The one blessing of the pandemic was that everyone could see everything. We had nothing else to do but sit around and watch our society for all its ills, whether it's like not getting equal treatment of healthcare and like racial injustices like George Floyd being assassinated and every other crime that was being committed against people who are black. And now with the vaccine rollout, you know, watching how brown and black countries don't get it first and same stuff is going, you know, it's not black or brown people that don't want the vaccine here. They don't get access to the vaccine here. They can't, there's not enough like resource centers in their communities to get it safely, especially for the elderly, right? Where if you come to where I live in New York and some of the neighborhoods around me, there's like a vaccine center every frigging, there's a there's CVS every few blocks that's giving out the vaccine. Yeah. Not the same for every community. It's not distributed equally. In fact, actually, arguably, the anti-vax people are mostly white so you know yeah yeah, and but they're not getting punished for that um but um you know you will lose um Mm. everyone's eyes are open and i think about this through this is becoming a movement that's bigger than just one race like this is a rainbow coalition i'm gonna steal a bit of fred hampton's line there it is a rainbow coalition they kill they have historically killed our leaders who've tried to unify black, brown, LGBTQ, white people. You can't do that because the movement isn't based in an individual anymore. It's a movement, right? And you will be on the wrong side of it because that movement is all your employees. That movement is your customers. And that movement is going to transform you whether you like it or not. And I know some people will push back, but they're, they're like, I described them, they're the, you know, like Trump. They're like the drunken boxer who used to be a champ who's knocked you down a few times in this fight. But if you get back up, they're on their last legs. They are on their last legs. They are, they're on their last legs. And if you get back up, because every time, every time I see some 
new child be killed by the police, it breaks part of me. But I know every time we still keep going, they're losing. This is at every level, right? Elections do matter, but it isn't everything. Change comes on the street and change comes inside companies too. If you activate as a group of people in your company, you can do what I'm trying to do is hiring formerly incarcerated brothers and sisters. Like I want to only hire formerly incarcerated brothers and sisters for the roles I control, you know? And yes, that's probably wrong, not illegal to say out loud, but guess what? It's not, it's equity. It's not, it's not bias, it's equity. Because those people have yeah. been left out of society by the systems that push them out of society that you thrive off, right? Yeah. So they, people in these companies and the customers them are going to drive it. And if you're on the wrong side of it, you won't exist. Yeah. Also, no one cares who you are in the end. Yeah. They're not going. They're going to look back and see what you did in this moment for your people, for people. And if you're on the wrong side of that, good luck. Goodness me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Ashish Prashar, who is the Global Chief Marketing Officer at RGA. Now, I know we skipped around. <laughs> Good luck keeping up with every. Listen, we. I'm not joking. When we stopped recording, we actually kept on talking for another hour, and then we literally were like, right, we've got to stop this now. It is a example of. The extent to which this movement is global, you know, Ashish is in New York now, but you've got somebody who, or you've heard from somebody, should I say, who was formerly incarcerated, who started off in the world and it could have all gone left, you know, and off he went to be the press secretary for the former mayor of London, Boris Johnson, but we won't say his name too many times. And then, you know, working on the election campaigns with Tony Blair and Barack Obama's 2008 US presidential campaign and then the midterms and then with Joe Biden and here he is a abolitionist in his own terms somebody who is deeply focused on social justice through recognition of the injustices but also seeing people as humans and in his span of control and within his influence trying to perfect change individuals that society continues to write off so I am in so much admiration for him this was another episode of Advancing Racial Equity 4.0 brought to you by HRE Wired and hosted by me Shireen the HR Conversationalist I thank you as always for listening and I'll see you again next time (laughs) 